we will try and minimize the amount of time you're exposed to crappy advertising that has no relevance to you and maximize the time you're looking at something that may have some relevance to you. And we miss, you know, we miss plenty, um, but we're trying to get closer and closer to that. I want to be my current self from this point forward. I want to learn how to play piano. Working with human beings. Drinking wine in the middle of the day. I want to be a Truck driver. I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead in life. I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. What's up, everybody? My name is Blake Fletcher, and this is the Half Hour Intern Podcast, where we explore the interesting paths people take in life. In today's episode, I speak with Chris Cox about programmatic advertising. So if you don't know what programmatic advertising is, you are not alone. I had never heard of it until this episode, and that is the very first thing that we tackle, so I'm not going to step all over that. All I can say is that it's basically modern advertising and the future of advertising, and uh, and it is pretty interesting uh it, like the things that they are doing and analyzing with programmatic advertising to try to make sure ad dollars are well spent for for customers like you and me is is pretty incredible um and it just begs the question of like where the future of advertising goes exactly um, with all the data that they're collecting and decisions they're making um, with all this stuff. So anyways, uh, without further ado, we will just get right on with the episode. Here is programmatic advertising. Chris, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Hey, real pleasure. Thank you for uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So I think we got to just start out with what the heck is programmatic advertising? <laughs> That is a very good question that, that a lot of people give you a lot of varying degrees of complex answer on. I'm going to try and do my, my simple one, which is essentially programmatic advertising is an attempt to like to, to automate the process of buying and selling advertising um, and um, moving away on, online in particular um, and making it as efficient as humanly possible basically using software to, to buy advertising and serve it um, moving away from the kind of human driven uh sort of historical way that it was done um into this new model okay so why don't you compare and contrast those for us so let's say yeah. how would advertising have been done how would advertise mints and all of that ad space how would that have all been bought and sold about 40 years ago in traditional media and how is what is happening with programmatic advertising today on the internet? So once upon a time, uh, way back in the, in the, in the dark days, you, as an advertiser, you wanted to put your ad into a newspaper, um, New York times, let's say, um, you would do a deal with them. You were going to talk to them and say, look, I think the people who read the New York times are the people I want to talk to. I'm selling this product. I want to buy this much space. I want to buy, you know, potentially, depending on sort of the, the type of publication, but you could say like maybe by regionally and things like that. But that was kind of your sophistication um, hit upon that. And um, over time, it, 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 it pretty much trundled along as that. And you've got these big global agencies that would serve different scale and so on. So if you wanted to run a campaign in different markets, that sort of started to come in where you could have the same campaign in the New York Times as in The Guardian um, and try and run, you know, those kind of campaigns across different markets. Okay, right. So if you were smaller, you might go directly to The New York Times and just be like, hey, I just want you. If you're a much bigger company and you know that you hopefully, I guess, want, I don't know, like 
20 to 40 year olds or something, you're going to go to an advertising company like yours, but you know, back then and say, Hey, get me in as many publications as you can that you think are good for 20 to 40 year olds. Yeah. And that's essentially where the advertising agency came from and, and, and grew out of was that ability to scale and reduce complexity for the client. So the advertisers themselves we're not going to go out and make a hundred deals. They just want their supply. They went to their agency and, and said, look, yeah, get me this, make it happen. Um, and then you would hope off the back of a good campaign, you would see some more sales. You would see some more footfall in your stores. You would see something. Okay. Um, as we roll forward, the internet comes in um, and, you know, early days, it was nice and simple. You could go to the New York times website um, or a, a website and just say, I'm going to do a deal with you. Same same problem again. You you have small, small amounts of places to put it. Um, so you could do deals direct or your agency could start to do small deals and things like that. Complexity started to build in the 90s. Um, more sites starting to come in. And um, that ability for buyer and sellers to talk direct to, to each other um, just became harder and harder as, as that scale starts to come up. And you saw the emergence of networks bringing together um, by consolidating different sites through a single platform, they brought that complexity down. You went to the network and you said to the network, okay, this is the type of thing I want. Let's get on with that. You then hit the late 90s, dot-com boom happens. That complexity blows up again. Everybody's got a website. You've got, you know, people set, start to set up their blogs and their, their little sites and all this kind of thing. Um, and everybody, even big brands, all of a sudden, you know, the big publishers all had websites and, you know, it's that... It was very one-to-one in that, you know, the traditional big publishers had their website. We hadn't sort of seen that emergence of, you know, HuffPost or BuzzFeed and those kind of companies that started to disrupt that came a little bit later. But what you did see was the emergence of companies like Google getting into that space that started to uh, enable services that, again, brought down complexity by allowing you to serve across a bigger array of sites or or to a target. Um, And that complexity came down a bit uh, or a decent amount and, and so on. You then... Steve Jobs then happens and ruins everything um, by, <laughs> you know, he goes, hey, everybody wants a smartphone, much to the, you know, uh, people's raised eyebrows that, uh, you know, that that was not a thing anybody would ever want. And all of a sudden, everybody did want it. And then so you see the smartphones, you see the tablets. People have got not just one computer in the home. They've got two. They've got three. They've got four. The Internet blows up you start seeing the emergence alongside smartphones of things like, you know, apps and social media start to blow up. So all of a sudden, you've not only seen a proliferation of places that the internet can happen, you've seen a proliferation of the number of people uh, globally who can who can get online. I mean, um, in the billions now of, of people who you can, in theory, access online, but you've also seen their behaviors grow more complex. People are spending their entire lives on uh, online, I mean, there's a there's a sort of slightly um, you know uh, out there stat, but it's kind of everybody typically has one to two devices that can all connect to the internet. Uh, certainly in the UK, within Europe, within America, within reach uh, all the time. When you're at home, you've typically got two to three within reach. I mean, I'm sitting here in front of a laptop, my phone's within reach, my TV's you know right behind me. I I can get online in three different ways without leaving my seat. Yeah. Uh, all of those places are platforms you can put advertising. Um, so the complexity then just exponential um, at that point, and it's so showing no signs of growing, of slowing down. You know, with that, the, 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 those, all of those factors continue to grow more complex um, over time. So this is where 
programmatic started to come in was an attempt to simplify that model um, and, you know, try and make the buying process about finding your audience, finding where value was and, and moving brands away from having to worry about where exactly they served and just saying, I need to achieve this with these people. You go and deal with that using what inventory you can access um, through the through the, the the increasingly complex ecosystem that's now there uh, to service that. So I guess I still don't understand the quite the difference between programmatic and traditional advertising because a traditional ad agency, let's say forty years ago, it sounds like was doing basically the same thing, which is a uh, a company, a large company, could go to an ad agency and say hey, I don't want to have to reach out to 100 different magazines and newspapers. I also don't even know which 100 magazines and newspapers are even good for 20 to 40-year-olds. Just handle it. Just take care of it. Yep. So what is different about programmatic advertising than that? What is what is programmatic advertising doing that that is not doing? So essentially, it's the automation piece is what has changed. It is the use of software and technology um, and data to enable that process. Okay. Uh, so instead of needing to go to an agency that's, you know, a classic old school agency would have, you know, offices in 50 different markets, 100 markets around the world, and they would coordinate across all those offices. Now, my company can can serve pretty much globally with 100, 150 people worldwide um, through those mechanisms. And, and that's driven by software um, and our ability to automate the vast majority of those kind of mundane processes, i.e. going out talking to someone, agreeing to, okay, I'm going to put you, this advertising in this place. Uh, none of that happens now. It's computers talking to computers, and we worry about the strategy, about the consultancy, about understanding the data, understanding the audience um, on top of that. So we are automating the kind of the mundane part so that the, the focus is more on the strategy and the thinking um, and basically driving efficiency. Okay, uh, so we'll get to the strategy and the thinking that all the human sure. beings do in a second, but let's delve into that piece that you said computers talking to computers and automating yeah. it. Like, what the heck are they talking to each other about? What is happening exactly? So you're kind of saying that, like, when I buy an advertisement, it's my computer talking to somebody else's computer to make that ad take place, not like a person deciding on anything? Yeah, I mean, so I'm, I'm yeah, so let's say you go on, go back to the New York Times, making this as culturally relevant as I can. Uh, <laughs> And you perceive that you've gone onto the page, you've got your news article of the day, and at the same time, you're seeing advertising appear down the side. Simple as that. That's what you as the, as the human being, who the, the, the user is seeing. What is happening behind that is we see the, you know, the, the ecosystem, um, the, the publisher starts to see that they've got this person has gone to the site, is on this page. That gives them access. That gives them your inventory to sell at that point. Um, so let's say there's three slots on the page. They will put those up for bid. Those go out through their what's called supply-side platform out into buying environment, the place where a company like mine, which is a demand-side platform, can actually bid on that um, through the ad exchanges. So the slot you know, uh, that they have served goes out, and we will say – along with 10 other companies, we want to buy that slot. We are willing to pay 50 cents for it. Um, one of our competitors might say a dollar, et cetera. Um, there is that process will go on. We, someone will win. The SSP, the supply side platform, will say, right, they won. Uh, pass that back with the ad. Serve it to you. And that this, happens this is all instantaneous, I imagine. 
as as close to it as it can be within human perception. It, you know, if you think about how long it takes, how long you feel it takes a, a, a page to completely load, that's how long it takes. Um, Incredible. So all these different companies are bidding on Blake Fletcher's eyeballs the moment that I go to a website. Yeah. That is freaking crazy. Yes, it is about as crazy a process. Like it's and it's part of why I like like I get really enthused about it because it is so fast, it's so clever, like and what we do, the sophistication of it is so high. And you can literally sit, you know, with our with our platforms and you can see tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of bids going out in real time and, and actually watch that happen and, and, and see that accumulate over time and know that's what's happening um, and get that data back as well and see what, what what the response is and so on. So we're talking about sort of consolidating a process that once upon a time, going back to the sort of 40 years ago model, would have been days and weeks. And we're talking about doing it in fractions of a second, um, millions of times. And um, 20 to 40 years ago, I guess, would have all been um trying to quote unquote bid on the the 20 to 40 year old market versus these people again i i guess are like literally bidding on on blake fletcher or they are bidding on chris cox like they are bidding on you not on a general market so this is kind of a cool point to get into because i think there's like some interesting stuff happens around this idea of like you know blake fletcher versus chris cox is that you know legitimate companies want to bid on an audience. They don't want to bid on an individual. They don't want to think in those terms because ultimately there's a privacy, there's an ethical component to that. Like yeah, you want yeah. to be reasonably private. I want to be pretty, pretty private. Um, we don't want to feel like a company owns us as an individual nor, and we don't need to. But what we do want to be able to do is find groups of people like you. Um, you know, professional podcast is probably a little bit niche. Um, but people who have a strong interest in audio equipment might be something that I might want to go after. So we would look for people with a profile of purchasing in that space or, or, or people with a profile of, um, you know, who, who are maybe a certain level of affluence with an interest in that space, those kind of things. That would be a fairly niche example. But, but you take my point is I'm not looking for you as an individual and trying to sell to you. I'm trying to sell to people who fit within a, a set of parameters that are logical to my client. So if I take, you know, um, a shoe brand, for example, like I don't want to, I want to make sure that I am putting men's product in front of men, women's product in front of women, and maybe do some differentiation on age. I'm not worrying about the individuals behind those groups. Yeah. Um, I find them and, and serve relevance to them. So I guess my question behind that would be, let's say I am a 30-year-old male living in San Francisco, and next door to me, there is a 30-year-old male, obviously living in San Francisco. We have completely different hobbies and interests. Will we, although we live in the exact same spot and we're the exact same age, will we be getting like mostly different advertisements on our computers because that that's more what people are going for? Yeah, so in principle, as long as there are limitations to all of this, you know, in, in terms of if you and, and this other person shared a connection, for example, we may have difficulty differentiating between that. There's technologies that can help with that. Mm, yes. uh, but but um, that might be a limitation, for example. But, um, yeah, absolutely. You know, you and I would see um, would see very different things. That And, and in principle, um, you know, that, that targeting is – intended to be responsive to users and, and what we can learn about a particular user. So it's essentially, I'm trying to think of a better way of framing that. Um, 
But yeah, I mean, go back to your point, it is essentially, in your case study, if you are, you know, one guy in one apartment, next door is a different apartment, and you've got demographically similar things, there should be other ways of differentiating you based on other factors, like the device you're on, for example. Like if we see, you know, you can get a lot of information on um, the sites people have been to, like what we call sort of upstream and downstream, when we can identify a user, we can kind of see the types of places um, they are coming from um, and sort of say, right, okay, it, coming onto this client's particular website is this type of person um, and they've got this type of upstream behavior. So we know that they typically are users of a particular site. We can try and target that site. We can try and focus in on that, for example. Okay. Um, who are the different players that are involved in this entire process? So you have the ad agency, you have the person that wants to buy the ad, you obviously have the website that is ultimately selling their ad space. Um, is is that it? Have I, have I left anyone out? So there's a few. So yeah, I mean, we talk about a lot about the ecosystem and that's a word that gets thrown around because within that relatively simple frame, there's there's an enormous amount of companies because this is... I mean, there's kind of a Wild West component to it. Where this is a this is an industry that is not a fully developed industry. It's something that's building itself as we go um, because of that proliferation. So there's always new companies with new ideas and new technologies coming along, new approaches. Um, Don't you feel like this is the way that the world is going to be forever going forward <laughs> because of the speed of technology and stuff? Like, there's never going to be some just like established way of doing things now. It's just like continuously going to be the Wild West forever in like all industries. I mean, to an extent, I think that's that's almost true. Um, I mean, hopefully, there's a part of me that says, let's hope it doesn't get real simple. <laughs> yeah. That would suggest something awful happened. Um, but, like, yeah, it, it, yes, technology is, is racing ahead, and there's new technologies all the time. You know, one of the things that we keep an eye out for is, or, or as a company we're keeping an eye out for, is what is TV going to look like in this space? Um, and is there a future of that, that this type of behavior within the TV space? um vr for example is another one that people some start to talk about you know that's is that going to be the next smartphone is that going to be the next device type that we're all using and everybody will have you know two in their homes with some sort of vr platform because that will be another level of complexity and and so on because each new device or each new type of behavior does not add one level of complexity it adds exponential complexity because what we're trying to do is identify you know people we can follow across devices as much as we can follow on any individual device so you're we want to find you in, in in all the places that you go one of the things that has changed and one of the things this is is supposed to help with and it is to get away from the world where advertising had no relevance and you know you just spray and pray and you go out there and and you know obviously consumers don't like advertising like you and me we're consumers in the real world none of us want advertising in our lives but there is a transactional component I think most people have challenged would kind of be cool with, which is I will put up with advertising to get something free. Um, I, I'll tolerate it. and I've always tolerated it on TV. To an extent, I'll tolerate it on YouTube. To an extent, I'll tolerate it on other platforms and, and, and publishings that I go on to because I like the news, because I like finding cat pictures, because I like whatever. Um, and I don't want to have to pay for every single website, so I will tolerate this. Now, Lots of consumers don't want to tolerate it in the in the context of online. They use ad blockers and and so on. So programmatic is is an, is an attempt to to solve part of that problem for consumers, which is by making this somewhat relevant 
and saying, okay, we will try and minimize the amount of time you're exposed to crappy advertising that has no relevance to you and maximize the time you're looking at something that may have some relevance to you. And we miss, you know, we miss plenty, um, but we're trying to get closer and closer to that. It's funny because I would way rather uh, just have a whole bunch of crappy ads on my screen that I don't care about than things that I want, you know, because it's like I've only got a limited amount of money and a limited amount of time to click on crap on the side of the computer, you know, so I would way rather have them just advertising me like women's blouses and stuff. And I'm just like, whatever. No, no thanks. You know, instead, it's like they, they, they like reel me in, you know, with these things that like I'm like, ah, like I don't want to cl- I don't have time to click on you right now, you know, or like or I don't have the money to buy this thing. I mean, yeah, uh, that is the downside. Is, is that <laughs> the more relevant we are, I guess, the more uh, the more willpower you need. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. But um, but that is the hope. Is that yeah, as I say, it, it's to try and cut down on crap on wasted space, which works in theory. Um, your your um, desire to purchase aside um, should sort of simplify that process and make it somewhat more relevant. Okay. So I apologize. I completely steered us in a different direction while you were trying to answer that question earlier of the different players that are involved in this whole thing. Um, so it's, you were saying kind of like there's several different players. It's not just like the advertiser, the, all that stuff. So one of the chain, you have publishers, the people who are New York Times, the Guardian, those kind of places, BuzzFeed, wherever. They have slots. They have the spaces for advertising inventory. Um, you know, that, that's what they have. They will push that out through what are called supply-side platforms who facilitate the actual selling process, um, and they'll work with those publishers to, to make that inventory available through the ad exchanges, which sit in the middle. Um, we then have the other side of the equation, which is the demand-side platforms, the people who are buying the slots and doing the bidding, um, and are the, the kind of mix of different companies, like we'll talk about in a, maybe a little bit in a moment. Um, and then you have the kind of the agencies who some of them are demand side platforms um, in and of themselves. Like they are doing every piece of it. Like essentially, you know, something we do is, is we are every part of that process in, in principle, the majority of that process. Um, so we'll help you strategize and then deliver on that strategy by buying for you and, and optimizing for you. Um, and then there are data management platforms, which is um, a whole other tranche companies who are the ones who are providing audiences and targeting and data that will help us find the right consumer in the right places okay let's talk about those people for a second who the hell are these people obviously i assume like google facebook are like huge ones and stuff uh but yeah who are these people collecting all this data about us what sorts of data are they collecting or i guess i should almost more specifically ask what data are they not collecting because i assume they're basically collecting everything um and is are they just selling it to freaking everybody so you're talking about yeah so it's an interesting question there because there are good actors and bad actors in that space in all of these spaces this is the problem wild west to an extent um generates bad actors uh in it um they are very much under pressure at the moment as the industry continues to try and push down on them um by and large the the, the good companies the vast majority of the industry is taking data that, in theory, you have consented to provide. Um, so, you know, for example, your Facebook data, um, that is by using the platform you for free, you are providing that, that data to them, which, which will enable, say, demographic targeting, you know, gender, age, 
things like that, things like social interests, the types of things that, that you are willing to share on that platform, um, we can use for targeting elsewhere. And that is kind of, I think, I, I feel like that's variously known, kind of how deep that goes. Um, but, um, you know, it is part of the process when you sign up. Um, and then other companies like, um, you know, um, Another example, like yeah, Google's another good example. As, as you mentioned, they have data on you as a sort of often most people have some sort of Google account uh, that, again, is providing an aggregated data source that can be provided for audience targeting and things like that. Um, along the way, there are huge numbers of these companies. Some of them operate in quite opaque ways, not out of any sinister thing, but some companies, um, for example, there are companies that will help build connections between devices. Um, so they will say, right, we're pretty sure that this desktop computer is the same user as this mobile phone. And, and therefore, you can follow this person. We, we can provide that targeting information. So they will operate a little bit more opaquely because they have invented something pretty clever and pretty cool, particularly if it works, which it doesn't always, but often does. Um, so they will operate a little bit more carefully in terms of what they'll share in the public domain. But ultimately, you know, we're all shedding this data all the time. And it's uh, there's an interesting, I think, tension between what people know they're shedding and what people don't know they're shedding. And that's something we as an industry, I think, are working on all the time. Um, lots of kind of new rules and regulations coming in in this country and in Europe over the next couple of years that will give consumers in principle more control over what they share um, and make companies have to work harder to ask for that data. Uh, right now, you are kind of prompted to say, by the way, we are dropping a cookie on your on your computer. It's very passive. Uh, I think over time you'll see a move towards some kind of active subscription. So you'll have to be more clear about what you are and aren't using. But if you go into, it's quite interesting actually. If you go into a lot of things like Google, like Facebook, you can actually deep inside them often find how they're using that data. It is it, it, most companies these days who are legitimate in that space will somewhere in fairly plain English explain what they're using it for and who they're passing it on to. Interesting. I, uh, another weird, like, sci-fi fantasy question. In the future, do you think, as someone who works in this sort of, like, data space, that AI from companies like Google and things like that, if, if they, depending on, like, how connected we, we get with all our devices and everything to the internet, will they basically just be able to predict the future? Like, will they be, like... Three days from now, Chris, you are going to be craving a chicken Caesar salad. That's going to be the only thing you want for lunch three days from now, because they'll have looked at like everything you ate for the past week and all these other things and like your relationship status and your hormone status. And it's like this dude's definitely going to want a chicken Caesar salad in three days. Do you think that that kind of a thing is possible where they're just like fully predicting our future um, like actions? Uh, yeah, in some ways, the sky is the limit on that of being able to predict um certain events i mean you know we we clearly are random engines to an extent and we clearly have um things that are completely random within our lives and, and we make decisions all the time and some of those decisions are you know are very complex and and, and fluid but um take my take you know um i often on a friday will go out and buy myself you know, it's a Friday, I'm going to go and buy myself a stupid lunch, it's going to be a burger or something like that. That's a pretty recurring behavior with me. That would not be hard to identify as 
a recurring behavior. <laughs> right. Uh, Next um, Friday, you're going to buy a burger. I am pretty much going to buy a burger most Fridays. That's yeah. a thing that's true. Um, and, but that almost doesn't need that sophistication. But it's but yes, as you say, you can kind of, you're almost at the stage now where that would be a doable thing. You just, you know, look at my purchase history and there's companies out there doing that all the time. That's uh, what my credit card company does. You know, it's they look at it and they go, okay, um, this is a regular burger buyer. He goes to a lot of burger restaurants. You know, it's that, that kind of thing is already being done at the aggregate. Question, do you think that we will get to a point, and I, I mean, you were saying that you don't necessarily see the use for that, but I mean, obviously, that is that is truly useful advertising data. Do you think that we will get to a point where you, someone like you would only have like burger joints within a mile of you being advertised to you only on Fridays? I think that would be a misuse of the technology in that by and large, those choices are made. Like I, I know the burger restaurants I like to go to, and and the utility of telling me about new ones is going to be relatively minimal um, in terms of. But what might be useful is can this guy be tempted to do something slightly different? Can he be tempted one step removed from his average behavior? And do we think, uh, as an advertiser, I'm uh, that that I can convince me on a, uh, to to try sushi? Um, to take another food, I, 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 I relatively regularly. Um, like it's that kind of thing that is interesting. Is like not driving a behavior that's already established, but finding the next behavior over, as it were, and advertising against that. That's yes. more valuable to me as an advertiser. Is like this is a guy who is convincible and is is findable, and I think I can nudge his behavior in a way that's useful to me. That is so interesting. And unfortunately, we're not going to talk about that today. You're going <laughs> to uh, refer a, a, a market researcher to come on That's the show right. as well. But that it is fascinating to think about, like, what are the actual useful things to advertise to this person? Because just because somebody buys a bunch of Nike shoes does not mean that you should advertise Adidas to them. They might buy a bunch of Nike shoes because they are a mother fricking Nike fanatic. And there is a 0% chance that they will ever buy a pair of Adidas shoes. So it is like a giant waste of money to be spending uh, any sort of Adidas ad money on that person. Uh, and yet then how do you like, how do you decide with all the data that's at your disposal, like what things are useful and what things are not like it's it's so interesting that you just said it would be more even though you get burgers every friday it would be more useful to advertise a sushi place to you than to advertise another burger place like that's fascinating but i guess that just goes to show you like the thought process of people in advertising and stuff that you know you 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 just don't know exactly what's going to be the right thing for somebody yeah i mean it's you know it's it's a bit of everything i think this is where Programmatic gets really interesting because of the richness of the data. You can go out and you can kind of go. So in a if someone client comes to me, I have money. I want to spend money. I kind of don't know where my audience is for this product, um, for this service, for this thing I'm selling. Um, but it's out there. I'm pretty sure. Here's money. Go and find it for me. So in principle, you can go out to programmatic and go big and just go out and buy on all the big um, advertising networks and just go out there and, and spend and spend and spend. Within that, you will gather a gargantuan amount of data um, very, very fast, startlingly fast. <laughs> um, and people like myself who, who sit in the more analytic space, I mean, I've sat within my current company both 
on the optimization side, like trying to find pockets of value and target money against it. And in the analytics space where we um, dig much deeper into that data and try and find a sort of second layer of it and, and answer deeper client questions around what we have. But the ultimate goal being that it is about finding that value. Now, as that data comes back, we'll be able to say, right, okay, um, two things I can immediately see here. Right, First of all, Thursday, Friday, Saturday is way better than Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Um, and Thursday, kind of average, who cares? Um, so I'm going to immediately draw down spend here. I'm going to push spend there. Um, the other thing I can see is that you know these cities do better for me than those cities. Um, therefore, again, I'm going to move money around. I'm going to see what happens there and see what goes on. Then a couple of weeks later, I'm going to go back to that data and I'm going to say, does weather play a part here? Can I see, you know, it's, if it's raining, does this help? Does it hurt? Um, if it's snowing outside, is that helping? Is that hurting? And the different services get you different answers on those kind of questions. So again, I can optimize again. I can optimize again. Now, this is something that's not happening over like weeks and months. This is things that are happening and can be done over um, you know hours and days. And some of it's automated. And increasingly, that's the question for industry is how we automate part of that, the basics of that investigation process and just automatically optimize against it um, rather than having human beings involved and, and, and again, recuse people for the purposes of the questions that are harder to answer mm. uh, over time. So those are the kind of things we are trying to find is, is that incremental value and that ability to push um, to the right places and the place you actually see value uh, and also then understand why that is valuable. Like, you know, it's all well and good to understand why, like, you know, oh, it rains, this particular advertiser does better. If I, if I can't answer why, that's not that helpful. I need to be able to answer that as well um, and figure out that, oh, okay, taxi company does better when it's raining. What a shock. That's not a blow away thing, but I still have to explain the why of it. And I still have to use that data cleverly um, to both find and answer that question. What are the stats on how much more effective this programmatic advertising is than traditional advertising and for that matter are there even stats at all for traditional advertising like if you were a company and you took out an ad in a magazine or on a television commercial or whatever do you have any idea if that television commercial worked or is it just like uh, did i notice that i got more sales the month after the television commercial ran and and i guess i'm gonna say that's because the television commercial but realistically i don't even know so you can ascribe, in theory, you can model some value to most advertising. This kind of gets into a slightly market research question, but I'll, I'll do it. I think it's, in, it's an interesting one. It overlaps quite tightly with what I do. So you've always been able to imply value to an extent. Um, so you take your baseline of typically in you know the month of January, I do about this well. Um, oh, I ran a TV campaign. I did slightly better in late January and into February. Okay, I can reasonably ascribe that back to something atypical. I can ascribe that to the, the quality of my advertising. And I can ascribe that over time, um, different campaigns, different piece of advertising, and try and disaggregate the signal from the noise in those cases. But you're always, you know, it's always the art of getting signal out of noise. Um, Which has got to just be so damn hard. I mean, yeah. it, you'd like to say it was your ad, but I mean, who the hell knows? Like, you know, yep. it's just weird the way things catch fire sometimes. Absolutely. And this is where programmatic gets interesting because of our ability to track and because of our ability to say, OK, I served this, this, you know, I, this user was served an ad, was served an ad, was served an ad. They then went on and made 
a conversion, like made a sale, did some, a conversion can mean lots of things, the crudest one being a sale, but it can mean, you know, some clients just want us to, to drive traffic and drive interest and like, um, and so on. And, and they're happy with that. And they feel like that gets them the value they need over time. Um, particularly if it's like a product launch or something, they can, they can see that. But um, we can say, okay, these people are following up and, and undertaking behavior. But again, this isn't perfect. This is not saying cause and effect. This is saying correlative. Uh, but it is a tighter correlation because I can I can see those masses of users. I can say, okay, this proportion of users went through, and this proportion of users undertook that useful activity, um, and I can track that, and clients can track that much tight, more tightly, and be more get closer to causative than they can through most other mediums. So that's the one of the advantages for the advertiser ultimately is. And this is, it's an interesting one because I, these guys, there is a reassurance in some ways of getting as close to causative as you can because it's just good to know even if it's bad news. It's not a bad thing mm, to yeah. know or be close to knowing because if you know versus you think, you can at least make a decision. Yeah. So even if it's not the best news story, obviously we want to deliver. We're, it's, 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 it's a nicer day for me when I can go with a good news story, but if it's a bad news story, it is, and as long as I can explain why, using the data i have great um it's it's something to learn it's something we can feed back uh, or we can use in our campaign work and we can optimize against over time so we are closer than has been historically true at any other point to having strong correlations between data um and activity in the real world and act action so then I guess back to the original question, are there any uh, just like numbers and quotes thrown around in the marketing world about how much more effective? So, yeah, I guess just numbers, like how, how much more effective programmatic advertising is than just traditional. I think cause, uh, th there aren't great stats on that simply because what each individual brand wants is different. The uh, amount it's, it's brands are not advertising how much money they're putting out there programmatically versus non-programmatically. Yeah, I guess that's so true. It's not so, even like apples and oranges. It's like apples and roast beef. Yeah, it's it's a difficult one. And um, but the point being that, you know, we we can see you can see value more clearly um at a, a client by client level and i mean this the the point of the industry at the moment is the money is following that ability to get closer to um knowing and i i was looking around just before we were set to call as as, as whether or not there are any good stats of sort of what would happen in 2017 like um 2017 in the uk being about 3.4 um billion pounds um thought to have been spent through programmatic uh one way or another up about 24 percent the previous year and and potentially going up another billion over the next couple of years so it's it's so that's kind of the speed at which this sector is growing and, and 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 it's based on reasonable results um and, and clients feeling like they're getting reasonable results yeah. and they can see those results and sometimes as i say the value sometimes is just in knowing versus not knowing um, exactly it just makes sense like i just don't understand why a company other than a budweiser a coca-cola or something like that would ever advertise on like television nowadays it's like the gigantic brands like that the only reason that they're even spending these millions and billions of dollars in those sorts of ads is, is just brand recognition just like hey we're here we're here just want to let you know we're here we're here we're here whether or not you go out and buy budweiser that day i mean that would be nice whatever but they just want to know they want you to always think of them and that's it but 
if you're basically anybody else, you really want that person to like buy your freaking product, you know, or like use your service like pretty soon. And it just makes so much more sense that if you're buying a it like ads online with programmatic advertising, like you said, like that if you did just spend like a million dollars or if you're a small company and you just spent $5,000, that was like a ton of money to you, that if it didn't work, if you did not get more business, let's say, you are at least going to know why. You're going to know that this group of people I don't want to go for next time versus if you are a small company and you just spent $5,000 on a TV ad, you're going to have no idea if why it didn't work or even really if it worked or something. But it, you're, it, there's no data for why it didn't work. And like you said, that strikes me as being so incredibly valuable if you're a newer company just trying to get your legs under you and kind of figure out what's going on like have any idea of what your own audience is, you know, like to get some no's is, is gotta be a really good thing. Yeah. And I, I think that's where, you know, the, there's two interesting things happening there. One is the, yep. Money is following particularly into like the mobile space, into social spaces and things like that. Advertising revenue push, uh, advertising um, spend going into those places more and more. Um, that said, and then there's a pressure on the industry to get some of these other mediums, to become more and more programmatic. And there are interesting things happening in TV and radio, for example, um, around making it so that, you know, you and I were in apartments next to each other would see slightly different mix of TV ads mm. uh, on our, on our, in our ad breaks. So that it's something relevant. So that it's the right thing. I mean, TV, and that might be really fascinating. And this is, so I did, I used to work a bit in, in, in the TV space in my, in previous roles and, I think that would be fascinating movement because I think then you could see smaller brands getting to actually be on TV because they may for, for sure. the first time be able to take small amounts of money and find small audiences and actually say, oh, okay, I, I can get to these people for the first time in this medium um, and um, and go down that route. And, yeah, you know, radio is becoming uh, – radio, I suppose, is a catch-all term for kind of – transmitted music if you include um lots of streaming services and things like that is another space where i think is right for that to become more common and and there'll be companies that, that start to colonize that space very aggressively i think as the technology evolves and that's kind of where again we come back to that wild west point a little bit of like this is all being invented as we go and i often make a joke is like it's it's we're building a staircase that we're climbing and and it causes some fascinating problems as much as it causes some very exciting things mm-hmm. <laughs> Because, you know, we don't know what this industry will look like in five years' time. There's lots of people who will say that, but I, I, I'm not convinced that they do. And, and that's part of why I get really excited about working in it, is that um, you're working in something that is constantly evolving, is constantly becoming more complex and more exciting, um, and which the industry is really focused on and so on. Yeah, I love it, man. Um, all right, I would like to know like what your thoughts are on uh, or I guess your experiences in the past have been with getting websites or, or, or getting businesses uh, clicks versus getting them actual sales and getting them actual business like what do you see that works really well for conversion what does not work so well for conversion is there really like no magic wand otherwise everyone would just be doing it yeah I mean it's um I mean, uh, the the good news is we're moving away from clicks, uh, by and large, as an industry. Um, there's always a, a sort of crazy metric. Um, but, um, 
and we use some quite sophisticated now KPIs, key performance indicators for, for different clients, and those can be a range of different things. There is no magic bullet. Um, I wish there was, because then we would just do one thing over and over again. It would always work, um, and I'd have much less to do during the day. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, it's it's an interesting question of um, – how we find that value and, and what we are looking at for that value. And there's an interesting question, for example, around, I'm going to go on a slight tangent here because I think it's, it, it will eventually meander back to the point. Um, but I was talking with, with colleagues recently about like how we think about creative within the mix, like the actual look of an ad. Um, and my last role, I used to look at a lot of advertising, particularly TV advertising. I would watch constantly which was never maddening uh, when you've watched the same tv you had like 40 times um, <laughs> over and over again trying to figure out something about it and um and you know we we were we were looking at it within our space and I, I realized that i hadn't actually kind of looked at an array of ads within a client campaign for a while i hadn't done that for for like multiple weeks which was like when we had a lot of advertising out there and, and it's because we are you know not as uh, necessarily thinking in those terms. We're thinking in terms of the data and we're thinking in terms of those kind of harder metrics that we can use uh, to understand performance and, and what's driving that. And is it frequency, for example, like a really raw metric, like, oh, we expose this person to an ad six times. It does better than if we expose it to, to people five times. And like, okay, we'll optimize to six times without thinking maybe it's the creative itself and maybe you need to see it six times before you understand what's in it um and and thinking in those terms mm. so and and you know there's all sorts of different things that feed into that um and it's an area where we as a we're all trying to get more sophisticated is understanding what drives value because there is no perfect understanding and if you go to 10 different companies in this space they will all tell you it's a different thing um or they'll all tell you variations um their own personal sort of pet theories and it's it's everybody's right um, to an extent, because they're probably following some sort of trail of data that says, oh, okay, when this is true, this is also true. Um, client performance is better. Uh, and it's accounting for all those things when you have an insurmountably large amount of data um, to play around with. And, and data is, I've used that word a lot, and it, it, it can mean anything. It can mean, you know, if you look at, uh, data can be how you break down the ad itself. So again, going back to like TV advertising, um, if you look at, you know, three different ads for a beauty company, you can have um, like one with one model is in the, the ad. Uh, one's got two models in the ad. One's got three models in the ad. And the, the one with three models in tends to underperform versus the one with one model in, even though it's the same product, even though it's the same frame and everything else. And it's because that the ad with three different models in um, this is kind of a neurosciencey kind of idea is is more complex because there's just more information to absorb and therefore the brain doesn't take the time to learn what the product is and why it's a good thing and everything else but if you have one model go this is a great hair product you should use it um that's nice and simple it's nice and easy but someone has to sit and watch the ad to figure that out god that's so interesting you'd never you'd never find that in the data you would just say this one's crap this one's good i can't figure out why whatever um and that's there's all these different points uh, around it. And um, as you can tell, I've, I've been thinking a lot about creative uh, recently, but um, but it's, it's all of that. So there isn't a kind of magical spell um, that, that we can use uh, because it also depends what the client wants to achieve and, and whether or not they want kind of a hard sell or do they want to just drive the brand? Do they want to drive a particular perception of that brand? 
and how do we measure that is, is all part of it. Um, and, and the sophistication, again, on our side, when a client wants to understand something more complex is not an incremental level of complexity for us, is exponential, potentially. Man, that is fascinating. And that's got to be a really fun thing to work on, almost kind of playing detective and trying to figure out like what is correlation versus hopefully like what might potentially be causation. Yeah, I mean, it is. It's been part of my career for about the last kind of six, seven years now. One way or another has been trying to find hidden gems of value in one context or another. And, and the the kind of course of my career has been towards that because it is really exciting because like when you can sit in front of a client and say, we found this thing out for you. It is really cool. Uh, and you wouldn't have found this answer on your own because we're really smart. (laughs) Totally. That's a good day. The exact example you gave, I can't like the first time that that was ever discovered with like the beauty product thing. I can't imagine being the person at the ad company that explained that to the person that worked for the beauty company. Like, I feel like that would just blow their minds. You know, it's so cool. And, and, the, and the best part is people keep making new mistakes. <laughs> yeah. like, there is, there is still ads being out there that, that, that we, you know, ha, that, that are ineffective in style, that people will keep making them because there's all sorts of incentives about how you make advertising and how you serve it and everything else. And sometimes those incentives don't necessarily line up well with reality. And, and, and again, you can find all sorts of interesting stuff there of, of um, how the industry works and why it works in particular ways. But yeah, it is it is legitimately a fascinating space and and um, at the same time a really challenging one because the clients the the closer you get to causation, the more often you get close to causation, the more often you're expected to get close to causation. Yeah. So the, if you turn up, you know, three times in a week with a cool answer. The, the day you can't turn up with a cool answer is a bad day. Whereas, <laughs> right. whereas 40 years ago, people would have just gone, ah, it doesn't matter. Doesn't yeah. matter. It's all We're fine. Totally. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun for that, but at the same time, it's, it's new challenges and, um, you know, it, it, it really drives um, a lot of passion. I, I, I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm lucky to work with some people who are really passionate about this and they, um, I think that's that's kind of the cool part of it is is this thing of of getting excited about it and doing it. Yeah, for sure. All right, Chris. So most of this interview has been sort of a uh, a very positive session about programmatic advertising and, and made it sound like a very good thing. Uh, let's swing to the other side of this for a second. What are some of the negatives or sort of shortcomings in programmatic advertising that are still being worked on and that hopefully we might have figured out in like five to ten years or something like that? Um, so one of the big things that, that gets talked about a lot right now is kind of what the industry calls brand safety, um, uh, but is and that kind of is a slightly sinister sounding term for basically you know brands don't want to put their content against um, things that are socially not acceptable um, in one way or another. They don't want their advertising to serve in um, extreme context, let's say, and what you define as an extreme context can vary brand to brand. Like you know, some brands will have higher tolerance for that than others. Um, so, with the speed we're operating, um, with the way this is all set up, and with bad actors within the system, there are always people trying to trick the system so that they can get the revenue for advertising against their site, which is somewhere that client would never want to be, where that brand would never want to be seen. Um, that's a constant battle, um, and it is you know constantly evolving it's getting more and more complex over time 
as those bad actors within the system. Um, you'll have seen it particularly around YouTube um, last year now, I suppose, uh, as we ease into 2018. Um, YouTube's big challenge last year, and they got a lot, of, uh, a lot of flack for it, was not allowing brands sufficient control over where their advertising turned up and um, get turned up against some very extreme content. Brands like, you know, Coca-Cola do not want news stories about how they are, you know, sponsoring some horrendous thing, whether that's, you know, terrorism, whether that's hate speech, whether that's et cetera. Um, so that's a huge how, problem. How could they even control that? That sounds like an impossible thing to control. <laughs> it is extremely difficult um, because although... Once upon a time, in an ideal world, people would just flag what that content is. Now we have to rely on, on algorithms and so on to identify what types of content are out there based on lots of variables. Um, but most, you know, YouTube is, is tightening up a lot. And you'll see lot of content creators on YouTube complaining about how tight it has gotten because YouTube wants to put a lot of guardrails in place uh, to prevent against risk of brand safety. Um, we work really hard to to ensure that we eliminate bad actors by blocking them. Uh, sometimes directly, like we'll literally go and find like tranches of sites that are really bad news and just block them uh, manually, one by one. And uh, there's loads of companies will do that. There's companies will do it for you if you want. Um, and that gets into kind of the other side of it, which is the ad fraud problem, which is these bad actors operate at scale. They want to generate revenue. They want to ultimately leech off this system and, and, and repackage inventory as something that it's not. So they want to take stuff from very unpleasant places and, and make it seem to the buyer like it's coming through um, a legitimate third party, like a news site or something like that. But the actual serving is happening downstream. It is happening elsewhere um, that you don't want it to be. And you don't necessarily find that out until after the fact, but there are loads, there are signals we can find to say, okay, this is not the real thing. And there are third parties we will work with um, who will help us identify that that kind of behavior and what is fraudulent activity. Um, you know, it's, it's if a site has got, if, if every time a site loads, it's got 200 slots for advertising, that's probably fraud. Um, yeah. Most people don't think quite that blunt anymore, but it does exist and, and it, it has existed. Um, now it's much more sophisticated. It tends to be that kind of masking of inventory. Um, and those kind of things. So those are problems that are constantly cyclic because we move the needle on what we can track or or one of our partners moves the needle on what can be tracked and identified as a problem, and then it will cycle back and the the, the, the bad actors will figure out the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Um, and whatever technology we, we come up with, it will constantly evolve. There are things that are being done in the industry to kind of make it easier to exclude that by understanding better and, ma and making sites give up better signals as to what is and is not fraudulent. Um, and and the, the mechanics of that are not wildly interesting, but the that's the point, is that the legitimate actors are more and more willing to give signals that this is real content and real um, legitimate inventory they are putting out into the world. That is fascinating, man. I would have never thought of that at all. That is a real problem you guys have on your hands. That does not sound easy to fix. No, it, it is uh, a significant scale and, and something that we spend a lot of time working on is, is minimizing that risk for our clients, for ourselves. And because ultimately, you know, we, it's not good news for us. Like, we don't feel good about ourselves if we put content and pay for bad things and, 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 and sponsor bad things. 
Um, I certainly don't feel good about it. My colleagues wouldn't either. Yeah. Uh, so there's that. And the other side of it is, is it's new. So it, it's, it's the point I've made a couple of times, but this is a, you know, every, every time we get good at a thing, there's a new thing. <laughs> Although that makes it exciting. It makes it difficult. It makes it challenging. It, it means that we constantly have to be thinking, you know, a year down the line in an industry that doesn't often know what a year down the line is going to look like. So right. it's not a space for low blood pressure. <laughs> yeah, I it's bet. Like, you know, it's 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 always exciting for that, but it's also a challenge for that. And it's um, this industry, the advertising industry as a whole, is evolving extremely fast, um, generally. And knowing your place in that is is a problem. But um, but it's again something that it, I think some companies are working out and some are not. Okay, let me uh, run over a couple of negatives that I see with you, and uh, cool. and you let me know if and when these sorts of things will ever be fixed. I'm so, enjoying uh, <laughs> one one of them is I, and it blows me away, like the legitimacy, uh, the, the legitimacy of the websites that these ads are on. Like, it's not like this is on like weird websites. It'll be on like. Um, like my fantasy football league on uh, on like CBS. So that's like, you know, CBS.com is like a major website, you know? And uh, I'm trying to think of like other ones. Anyways, these ads come up like all the freaking time on the bottom of the screen. And I'm, I know you've seen them. I know probably every man that listening to this podcast has seen them. And I don't know, probably every woman listening to this podcast has seen them. I don't know if they also, if they, they care that little about who they're targeting, but it'll be like, uh, she had no idea why the crowd was staring. And it's like a, the the most insanely photoshopped image of some poor girl that like, I don't know how her photo ended up on this thing. And like, that's yeah. just the headline. And it wants you to click to see like, oh, this girl who's, who, whose boobs are like so crazily photoshopped and stuff. Like, oh my gosh, like why were they staring? Was her top just about to fall off? Or like what happened? And like, I have never clicked on one of these ads ever because it is like the most insanely base thing that they are trying to play to like your most base human instincts. And and it's just like, how are you advertising this to me? And yet it'll be like a row of, of ads like that. It'll be like one with a girl. Then it'll be like one with some huge jacked guy, like at the gym and like, Oh, he didn't know why blah, blah, blah. And, And it's like the, 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 it's like the corniest, most ridiculous taglines on every single one of these like crazy photoshopped images. And yet I still am constantly getting these ads. How the hell is that happening when I've never clicked on these ads? Is it like that's how many other people that are my age are clicking on these ads that I'm just going to keep on seeing them forever until people stop clicking on them? So they can be driven by a few things. The, the, the primary one is that in a system like this, there is always going to be remnant inventory. There's always going to be a certain amount that no one cares about, like doesn't want to buy for whatever reason um, within it, at which point it will slide down and down and down in value until it finds a buying point. And the buying point of that for that type of content is extremely low. You're talking about tiny, tiny, tiny costs. Um, so you can just plaster that everywhere so it feels like it's everywhere. Um, and those are the types of, you know, I took too ill of them because they 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 serve their purpose, but those are kind of soaking up that 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 um, remnant uh, inventory that's out there. That's so uh, weird to me for to hear you say that about the cheap cost, though, because to me, I mean, fantasy football is a huge thing. Like, I feel like that would be a pretty desirable space for advertisers to advertise on your fantasy football page. Like, that's that that already is a fairly targeted demographic. Like the fact that you know this person plays fantasy football, you know. 
Yeah, and it, it, it will just come down to there is so much going out into the world that, that at a certain point, um, some of it is is soaked up and, and at different times, different advertisers will, will push or won't. And it may be almost, you know, some of that may just be a, a case of people aren't targeting it in the right way and, and people aren't approaching it in the right way um, or for some reason um, outside of, of either of our necessary comprehension, that isn't where value is. And that maybe people who are going on to, to play fantasy football are very focused on that. They, they don't click through. They don't um, undertake youthful behavior off the back of it. So brands move away from it. That would be a, off the top of my head hypothesis about that. Mm. Uh, but it is coming down to the fact that if you create a space to buy that has any value, someone will buy it sooner or later. Um, because at that point, you're buying for almost nothing. So if you have almost nothing happen off the back of it, it's fine. Um, and like you say, it does, it works for that aggressively clickbaity style that unfortunately does work. We're wired to want to like, to some extent, not follow that type of content. Um, it's why, you know, and, and look at, look at more legitimate places that use those tactics like the Buzzfeeds of the world. Yeah, and so on. Right. It's, it's ultimately the same mechanism working in a different way. It's an attempt to kind of grab attention and just kind of make a mindless activity off the back of it and there are some bad actors in that space as well the the and, and it's again brands that can't necessarily afford to go big and they will use these networks because those networks will promise a lot um and and how well they can deliver on it is a great question but it's um it, it's a prop it's it's not ideal <laughs> i would like to see better quality advertising and, and things like that and people in our industry would but like i say if you create an environment where it's all saleable, people will buy it sooner or later. Okay. Well, I'm happy to hear you that that being the response because what I figured is that so, like I said, like that so many people were clicking on this all the time that it was just like constantly winning out for advertisements because everyone was clicking on it. But you're saying kind of the opposite that it's that's kind of like the bottom of the barrel advertisement. That's that's my hope. <laughs> <laughs> right. Or it's or it's the most expensive, most popular ad. <laughs> Yeah, since I don't tend to put too much of that content out into the world, and my company doesn't either, uh, yeah. um, I don't have a great sense of it. I'd love, I would actually. There's a legitimate part of me that would love to work at a company that does something like that and just be like, "Oh, right, okay." Yeah, because I'd love to have that answer for you. But I, I have suspicions, and 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 that's kind of where I net out. Okay, so my other one, uh, less nefarious sort of thing, is is just the negative of when I am searching for a product. There, uh, the especially like if I was on a particular website, like that website, I'm going to get advertisements for that exact product that I was looking at on that website. What'll happen a lot of the time is I will be searching for something on a website and I will end up buying it elsewhere. And, or sometimes I think I even buy it from like the particular website. And then I will keep getting advertisements from that website or other websites about that product. And it's like, uh, dude, I already bought this. Like, I don't need another one. You know, like I, I just needed one pair of shoes and I bought that pair of shoes already. You don't. And I feel bad for the company because it's like, are, you're wasting your money now, right? Like you're advertising this thing to me that I already bought. Is that ever something that will be able to be fixed, which is knowing that somebody actually bought something somewhere else. So you can stop sort of harassing them about it. Yeah. So this is a, uh, you know, touching on, a fairly, you know, fairly legitimate way we approach business, which is retargeting. We want to find people that um, have shown an interest in a product because there is value there. Typically, if you've shown some interest in a the product, there's a decent chance down the line you'll buy it. Um, so we want to follow you to an extent. Obviously, 
if you bought that product elsewhere, you bought it through a different um, supplier, or you've even bought it on the same site in, say, a different browser session down the line, and you've got um, we've got an incomplete ability to track you uh, for whatever reason, we may not be able to connect that to we can connect you and and people like you to the interest, but we can't necessarily com- attach you to the com- to the conversion to the, the buying activity. Um, and that's a that's a challenge within the technology. And again, it's something that's always evolving. But because users are not perfect entities to track uh, for a variety of reasons, we can sometimes inconsistently track a piece of information um, and follow you thinking, oh, this person hasn't bought the shoes yet. Um, and we'll definitely get him eventually. And, and unfortunately, that that's kind of, it's another one of those things where we're constantly working on it, but there isn't a perfect solution to it because our ability to track evolves, our ability to, to know you evolves over time. Mm-hmm. So finish, finish that answer with, do you think that that will ever be fixed or not? Or is that like, it's basically an impossible problem to fix? It will never be perfectly fixed. Uh, I think is a, there's a, there's a bold statement for you within a reasonable <laughs> time frame. It will never be fixed because it is, it, it for, as a perfect thing because it is simply there is no perfect way of tracking people yeah. and unless we create a world in which people have to a centralized id that they use for everything on the internet that replaces all cookies replaces all everything forever um which is uh, you know i hope never going to happen <laughs> yeah right totally terrifying a fairly aggressive dystopia that we would all have to live in then um the you know the 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 world in which we could perfectly track that would be a world in which you have no privacy yeah and that would be a terrifying world to live in yeah Uh, and as i say there's a trade-off in this industry against wanting to give you an appropriate level of 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 privacy whilst at the same time trading off uh, against you know hopefully giving you more of what you want um or at least giving you something that's vaguely relevant to you right right Okay, Chris, let's go ahead and finish this thing up. I would love to know how you would recommend somebody end up getting a job like yours. So it's very like cutting edge advertising sort of stuff. What would be the starting point for getting a job like yours and the path there? So in, in my case, bounce around for about a decade until you find something really cool <laughs> and then go and do that. Um, um, it, you know, it's a niche industry. Uh, it's a growing industry. The, the way to kind of get into it, I would say, is to find things that you know, either find, first of all, test it because it's, it is because it's niche, because it's specialized, because it's lots of other things. It can seem like a lot of things from the outside. Um, and it's one of those kind of things I would always say to people, like kind of try before you buy. If you are coming into your career, try and get an internship somewhere, uh, try and find work experience somewhere, try and meet people in it. A lot of people in my industry will, will be really cool about talking to people about what they do. I'm, I certainly do and, and would always be you happy. You just to did. I did. I just <laughs> sold it. Um, but, you know, give it give it a punt and, and, and go down that route. That said, you know, what we're looking for in this industry more and more is people who can understand data and explain it to clients and talk to clients about it. Um, so building that skill set through your career of like going to, you know, we've, we've touched on market research and things like that. Um, those kind of industries are interesting to us. People who can um, understand complexity and articulate it and build narrative around it and those kind of things. It's it's a thing to to kind of want to do as well. I think we, we see people who kind of think it's one thing. Um, they come in and are a bit disappointed by it or they don't they don't kind of because it, it because we are 
a new thing that's coming off the back of a much more traditional industry, people get us confused with the traditional industry. Um, and I think you want to kind of differentiate between those two things and, and, and learn about it and read about it a bit beforehand. Um, so yeah, it's, it, you know, we want learn, learn to be in front of clients, learn what data is, learn what, what insight is, learn how to tell a story is another way. Another thing I often say to people like storytelling being able, is, is part of like that ability to take data and put it in front of people in a way that makes sense is building a narrative um we're we're a story driven species no one cares about numbers they care about the narrative of those numbers and learning how to do that um is really powerful and and there's nothing more impressive to me than a candidate who can you know we obviously when we're hiring people we'll send them a task and we'll send them you know tell us something about these numbers uh there's nothing more impressive to me than someone who will turn up with a, a story to tell as opposed to just saying well this is five percent that's eight percent this is 27 percent, and therefore 27 percent is better like there's something there and and and, and learning that skill Go out and read about it. Go and learn those kind of skills independent. It's a fascinating field um, in and of itself and, and will stand you in good stead in a vast array of jobs down the line. Do you um, feel like you would sooner hire somebody with less experience that was an amazing storyteller than somebody with a whole bunch of experience that wasn't a good storyteller? Yeah, uh, <laughs> I think I would. Um, because I think if someone has shown the enthusiasm and the passion and and, and and has shown enough competence with what I've given them as data to find a narrative and a story within it. They've shown me enough that I'd be excited about that person's potential and they might not work out, but I feel like they would work out more often than someone who came to me and could just understand the data um, and, and just articulate it back to me because that's kind of what I suppose. And that might be a bias on my part because that's kind of who I am and, 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 and how I like to operate. Uh, but I think that's the way the industry is going increasingly is the, 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 everybody is kind of client facing increasingly uh, some specialist roles will get to remain back of house that's fine but um, but you've got to want to be in front of clients you've got to be enthused by that I think um, to at least to an extent and that and show some of that enthusiasm yeah definitely man Chris all right man this has been so great thank you so much for coming on the show it's been really interesting if people have any questions after listening to this is there anywhere that people can find you and maybe get some more info yeah, absolutely. You can uh, anybody can find me on on LinkedIn. Um, I am client analytics lead at Infectious Media. Um, my name is Chris Cox, and just ping me. Um, you know, I'm big on mentoring, big on answering questions. It, it's something I find really enthusiastic. I'm really enthusiastic about. So, so go for it. Cool, man. Well, I will put a link to that on your post on the Half Hour Intern site. And uh, again, this has just been really fascinating. So, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thanks for your time. Hey everyone, it's Blake. I hope you all enjoyed the episode. If you did, I would appreciate it so much if you considered leaving a review for the show on iTunes. I swear it'll only take like two minutes. Um, just search for the show on iTunes, click on it, click on ratings and reviews. You can leave a quick review um, or just uh, keep listening to the show. I appreciate that as well. Or tell a friend about the show or something. And if you have any ideas for the show, if you have a particular job or hobby that you would like to hear interviewed on the show, if you yourself think that you do something interview worthy and you would like to tell the world about what this job or hobby is that you have, head on over to halfhourintern.com. There's a link right there at the top that says submit your ideas and you could submit your ideas for the show be them uh, somebody else that you would like me to interview a particular field that you would like to hear about or even if it is you yourself that would like to come on the show thanks so much for listening you guys